I never imagined myself working at the local Rest and Relax Inn, but shortly after my college graduation, I found myself shaking the hand of the manager, Mr. Scargo, thanking him for the job and saying, see you Monday, as I smiled and left the building. I walked through the steaming parking lot, my social high quickly dissipating. All that remained was nerves. I had no idea what I would be doing in the job, and I wasn't excited about working until four in the morning. My friend, Julie, had made plans to celebrate our graduation with a few drinks later that night. As I plugged the bar's address into my GPS, I didn't feel much like celebrating, but I didn't want to let her down. A few drinks became a few more, and it was late by the time I headed home. The moon was scarce, and my head was spinning like crazy. Driving slowly through the empty roads, the sign that read Route 22 seemed to bend and warp as I passed. There were no streetlights, so my high beams lit the darkness of that small two-lane road alone. Sometimes a few cars zoomed by on the opposite lane, but, for the most part, my ride was a solitary one. I felt like I was making good time and managing the alcohol in my system well, when suddenly, my front tire veered off the road with a violent bump. I kept going, but I looked back in my rearview mirror as the body of a newly dead coyote disappeared into the darkness. The mile markers flew by, and I became aware of a sinking feeling in the pit of my stomach. My first thought was nausea, but it was too heavy for that. My hand started shaking. The road seemed to waver violently through my windshield. I couldn't bear it any longer, so I pulled off the side of the road and into the tall brown grass, leaving the engine running. I took deep breaths as my heart beat loudly in my ears. I tried heaving, but nothing came up. A tall stalk of grass brushed against my cheek, and I jumped, instantly aware of how alone I was in the darkness. The heaviness in my stomach slowly dissipated, but it was replaced by a feeling of dread that I couldn't understand. More than anything, I wished that I could just blink my eyes and be back home in my warm bed. I walked around the front of the car to the driver's side. The image through the window lasted for only a fraction of a second before it was gone, but it was enough to make my hands shake uncontrollably. These nerves would have made sense if I had smoked, but I hadn't. Maybe I was just tired, I reasoned with myself. I probably could have stayed there petrified all night if the wind that whipped through the tall grass and the sound of coyotes in the desert hadn't unsettled me so much. I rounded the back of the car this time, slowly. There was no strange reflection, no figure, just the red of the taillights. I opened the driver's door and climbed quickly inside as images of wild animals croaching in the grass flashed through my head. With the door closed and the gentle hum of the engine, I felt safer. I laughed to myself feeling somewhat silly for my paranoia, and put the car into gear before starting back on the road. Still a little uneasy, I flipped on the radio. Some country song started playing, and I let the singer's twang and steel guitar give me whatever comfort they could. But it wasn't long before that same sickening feeling of dread started bubbling up again. I mentally noted that I'd need to make a doctor's appointment tomorrow. The feeling only got worse as the road passed beneath me. My intoxication seemed to grow stronger as well, I realized that that last beer was probably just beginning to hit me. I drove slower to be safe, and, after a few minutes passed, I saw the high beams of a car come up behind me, the light filling the cab with brightness. There was no one in the opposite lane, so the driver zoomed past me, taking his blinding light with him. As the cab grew dark again, I screamed. In the corner of the mirror was the reflection of a figure sitting in the back seat of my car. I slammed on my brakes and blinked rapidly hoping that the figure was just some trick of the light, an optical illusion. I glanced up again at the rearview mirror. It was still there. 
Oh my God, I whimpered. Oh God, what do you want? I screamed at the figure who sat motionless in the back seat. I couldn't make out its features in the darkness, and it sat there without saying a word. Get out of my car, I shouted. It didn't answer. A loud horn gave three bursts, and a semi-truck behind me swerved into the other lane, barely missing me, disappearing from sight as it went around a curve. The light from the truck's headlights illuminated my cab for only a second, but it was enough to notice a huge, bloody depression that ran lengthwise down the right side of the figure's head. I quickly opened the door and jumped out into the middle of the road, screaming. I could see the man in the back seat looking at me, no expression on his face. I ran back down the road away from the car as I frantically dialed the house on my cell phone. My dad picked up the phone and said he would come and get me and that I should call the police. I dialed 911. The operator assured me that they'd be there soon. I sat on the gravel along the road and kept my eyes fixed on the back window of the car, where I could still see the man's motionless silhouette through the dark. It was near morning by the time the police finally arrived. I told them what had happened and together we walked to my car. When we arrived, the man was nowhere to be found. A young officer with brown hair and a thin mustache sighed as he shined his flashlight into the back seat. Where's the guy? he asked. They both stared at me, a condescending smirk on their lips. He was here. I never took my eyes off the car, I said. Well, either you did, or he was never here in the first place, the other officer said, unless he dematerialized into the seat cushions. I'm being serious, I responded. So am I, he countered. Don't waste an officer's time like this. You could have a criminal charge on your hands. I'm being serious, I repeated, beginning to sob. I couldn't hold the tears in any longer. The two of them got back into their patrol car and drove away. I was still jittery, and I walked around the car several times to make sure the man wasn't hiding anywhere. I opened the trunk, searched the back seat, and scanned the grass outside. There was no sign of him. He must have bolted when he saw the cops, but I had been watching the car the entire time. I climbed back into my car, turned the key, and began to drive away, not daring to look into my rearview mirror. I had sobered up entirely now, so I drove quickly in an effort to leave the night as far behind me as I could. I heard a low voice mutter, repent. I brought the car to a screeching halt and threw open the door, my entire body shaking. He was looking straight at me from the back seat. His mouth was like a slit. It moved as it said the word again, repent. Get out, I screamed. His eyes bore into me and for a moment I couldn't move. Eventually, I found my motion and ran. As I ran away, I turned my head to look back to the car. His neck had twisted grotesquely, impossibly, to stare at me. I could feel my legs weaken as I put as much distance as I could between myself and that car. I collapsed on the side of the road and reached into my pocket for my phone. It wasn't there. I'd left it inside the car. I was shaking and crying as the sun peeked over the desert hills. Not long after, the headlights on my father's station wagon glided over and stopped just in front of me. Sammy, what are you doing? he said as he rounded the front of the car. He's still there, Dad, I said. He left, but he came back. He helped me up to my feet and then said slowly, I saw your car. There's no one there. Are you sure you didn't take anything tonight? No, I didn't, I said. Years of high school memories and his disappointed lectures flooding my head. I just want to go home. We walked to his car and I looked up at him. He was trying his best to comfort me, but there was a look in his eye that revealed his uneasiness with my behavior. We'll call a tow truck, he said. As we drove away, passing my blue car, I peeked through the passenger's side window. The man in the back seat was still there, cold and immobile. 
My parents never mentioned it to me, but I could tell that their general consensus was that I had gotten shit-faced, high, and too freaked out to drive back home. It bothered me, their reproaching looks and the whispered conversations I heard from the hallway. I was beyond jittery. The next morning, when Dad knocked his coffee over reaching for his glass of orange juice, I burst into tears. When the tow truck pulled up to our driveway with my car that afternoon, my jittery nerves turned to dread. I couldn't look through the front window of the house for the whole weekend, fearing I would see the man staring at me from the back seat. I couldn't avoid looking forever, and when I finally did, I saw nothing. There was some mud on the wheels and undercarriage, but there was no other sign that the horrifying night had ever happened. As the day went on, my thoughts became more rational. Julie and I had gone to several bars that evening, and it was entirely possible that one or two of them had been sleazy. As Sunday night drew to a close, I began to reason that it had all been caused by something that had been slipped into my drink. The explanation gave me comfort, but it still couldn't purge the man's haunting face from my mind. I slept soundly for the first time since Thursday, and didn't wake until late afternoon. My first day at the Rest and Relax Inn was only hours away, and I put on my vest and white blouse without much thought. Although I'd calmed down, I still wasn't willing to drive my car, so I borrowed my dad's station wagon and ignored the apprehensive look he gave me. As I grabbed the car keys from the kitchen counter, I made a mental note to avoid confiding in my parents again. The drive went smoothly, but I could feel the blood rush to my head as I turned onto Route 22. The sun was just beginning to set, and I pushed hard on the pedal to make sure I was gone by the time it had finished its descent. There was a semi-truck flinging dust up against my windshield, and I attempted to pass it. My heart pounded as I glanced quickly at my rearview mirror. There was just the tattered leather back seat, nothing more. My shift went well. The booking system was a little confusing at first, but I got the hang of it at about 10 o'clock. It was then that a weathered old man passed through the double doors of the hotel lobby and hobbled slowly to the table where we kept complimentary coffee for guests. It was obvious he was homeless and we weren't supposed to let them stick around. Excuse me, sir, I said. He didn't respond, grabbing a styrofoam cup from the stack and holding it underneath one of the spouts as coffee poured out. Sir, that's for hotel guests only, I said, slightly louder than before. The man stopped and slowly looked up towards the desk. Mr. Galloway always lets me get coffee, he said. He hadn't stopped depressing the small handle on the dispenser. I'm sorry, I said, embarrassed. I'm new here. He put the small plastic straw he had used to stir his coffee into the pocket of his tattered jacket and walked slowly toward the desk. You better be careful then, he said. I had a buddy. His name was Ben. He'd go down to see his family almost every week, thumbing his way the whole time. Sometimes he'd score, other times he'd walk most of the way. Yeah, well, that's how it goes sometimes, I responded, feeling awkward. He has a kid up north somewhere, he continued. A little boy. He showed me a picture once. I'm sure he loves seeing his dad so often, I said, before I turned my eyes to the computer at the desk and resigned myself to not saying another word. Maybe he'd go away. He did, the man said with a tone of finality. I'm sure it's going to be hard on the kid now. Ben was killed. They found him on the side of Route 22, just lying in the grass, a big gash all across his face from where he was hit. I could feel my hands grow clammy, but this was absurd. There was no way. The man sipped his coffee and walked slowly out of the lobby, while I stood motionless behind the desk. It had been a coyote I hit that night. I was sure of it. As I left the hotel for the night, I gave a sigh of relief. But it grew to anxiety with each step towards my father's car. I circled it cautiously several times before getting inside, checking all the mirrors. There was nothing. And 
soon enough I was making the familiar turn down Route 22. As soon as my wheels hit the road, my mind was brought back to the story that the homeless man had told me. I shuddered to think of a man dying alone on the side of the road, without a single soul around. Then, like something out of a nightmare, the light from my headlights bounced off of yellow caution tape. I brought the car to a stop, expecting to see an officer directing traffic, but I was alone. There was nothing but the large square of caution tape that jutted out from the side of the road and fluttered loudly in the dark. It was broken in places, but still clung to four large traffic cones. A coyote howled from somewhere out in the desert. In the middle of the cones was the outline of a man's body. I didn't have to see the blood to know that splotches of it dotted the area. I took a deep breath as I walked back to the car. I drove fast, faster than I'd ever driven before. I wasn't content to simply let the caution tape and white chalk mark on the road fade into nothing in my rearview mirror. I wanted to completely obliterate them from existence. I brought the pedal to the floor. Repent. The words echoed loudly in my mind, making my head pound. I turned on the radio, but only loud, grating static flew through the speakers. Repent. The word was no longer in my head. I'd heard it. I'd heard it with my own ears. Repent. A flash of lightning, or the headlights of a car coming from the opposite direction, and I swerved madly before I regained control. I was flying down that old two-lane road, and still, my heart and head pounded and ached to the rhythm of repent, repent. I felt something warm on my neck and looked up in the rearview mirror. His face consumed the entire mirror. I lost sense of myself and pushed up against the steering wheel. You aren't real. You can't be real. Then, for some inexplicable reason, I shouted, I didn't do it. I didn't. He was suddenly in the passenger seat, his head turned toward me in a grotesque fashion. Bright beams of light shot out from behind him, and a loud horn burst through the night. The car lurched, as glass and metal flew in all directions. My head smashed against the steering wheel, and I was rolling, falling into darkness, as the man, sitting motionlessly, kept his eyes fixed on me. Phantom Space Funhouse is produced by Nate Gutman, Kim Scharfenberger, and David Riondo. Repentance Road was written and composed by Nate Gutman and read by Kim Scharfenberger. Please follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Phantom Space Pod and leave us a five-star review on iTunes. That really helps people find us. If you have questions or comments or you'd like to pitch a story to us, you can write to us at phantomspacefunhouse at gmail.com. As always, thanks for listening.